Uh, our third speaker is Diane Vikand. She is professor of literature at California State University, Long Beach. Uh, John Fowles and Lawrence Durrell are her primary research interests, and she has published extensively on both. Uh, she co-edited Literacy, Language, and Power, and edited Conversations with John Fowles. Politics of Lawrence Durrell's Major Fiction. Although he is not generally regarded as a political writer, every one of Lawrence Durrell's major novels contains a significant level of political discourse in the form of social critique. From the expose of colonialism in the Black Book to the condemnation of totalitarianism in the Avignon Quintet, his concern with the political is evident. Such an observation is far from surprising when one recalls that Durrell worked for the British Council and Foreign Office for many years. In addition, his birth and early years in colonized India as well as his cosmopolitan expatriate lifestyle provided him with a perspective more distanced and objective than most from which to observe, record, and interrogate the politics of his time. Despite the general tendency to characterize Durrell as politically conservative and his own cultivation of an apolitical public persona, I believe the textual evidence of his fiction will contradict such biographical suppositions and illustrate that his work is much more politically progressive than commonly perceived. On several levels, it simultaneously reveals the ideology out of which it is born and that which it self-consciously resists. Karl Marx wrote, quote, The philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. By way of necessarily very, very brief inventories of Durrell's deployment of theme and techniques in the Black Book, the Alexandria Quartet, the Revolt of Aphrodite, and the Avignon Quintet, this paper attempts to illustrate how, as a literary artist, he combines the philosopher's interpretation with powerful social critique in an implicit call for action. In Kenneth Burke's terms, through narrative, Durrell is performing cultural work at the symbolic level. In an interview with Joan Gulianos, Durrell commented, quote, good politics should come out of values, and the artist is busy with values, not with policies. In an ideal arrangement, the artist would get on with forging the values out of which good policy would flow. Unquote. It would be difficult to find a more concise statement of Durrell's literary agenda. His novels are simultaneously a testimony to, and this is the conference theme, literature as a force for reconciliation and cross-cultural understanding, as well as an instrument for aesthetic pleasure, and a telling example of the truth of Wittgenstein's dictum that ethics, quote, ethics and aesthetics are one and the same, unquote. Most of what has been written about the Black Book, 1938, tends to focus on its style and significance in anticipating Durrell's later mega-novel, The Alexandria Quartet. In the preface written 20 years after the initial publication of the Black Book, Durrell reveals, quote, Underneath the phantasmagoria, real values are discussed, real problems of the Anglo-Saxon psyche articulated and canvassed, unquote. In this novel, Durrell explores a spiritual malaise he calls the English death that is negatively affecting both the worlds of art and of politics and discovers that its origin lies in the stultifyingly oppressive imperialist mindset of empire. In a letter to Henry Miller about the Black Book, Durrell writes, quote, I try to write about the English death infecting my poor little colonial soul. Durrell had been reading Spengler's Decline of the West and Imperial's concerns were clearly on his mind. 
The political and historiographic implications of the Black Book are played out in a critique of colonialism intrinsically related to the aesthetics of the novel. It abounds with cartographic metaphors, implicit and explicit references to colonial mentality, characters who embody imperialist attitudes or stereotypes, allusions to other writers who have taken colonialism as their subject, and a central passage that describes Miss Smith, the African woman studying Chaucer, that is replete with colonial rapacity that is as important as the oft-quoted Dear Allen letter. It is no accident that the main setting of the novel is the Regina Hotel, an allusion to Queen Victoria, the monarch during whose reign the British Empire reached its height. The atmosphere of death and disease, the English death that surrounds the Regina Hotel, fuels the chronicles of the Black Book, Geoffrey Stylite's diary, and Lawrence Lucifer's Abim. These texts provide Durrell with a reflexive textual model to underscore the acts of reading and composition, that is, interpretation and creation, two facets of agency emphasized within the novel that are used to interrogate the values of the time. In this way, form reflects content. The Black Book is written in a magic, realistic, ironic river of poetic prose set in the historic present. Durrell's colonialist critique consists of passages weighted with irony. According to Linda Hutchin, the doubleness inherent in the trope of irony is a powerful, subversive tool. Durrell attempts to revivify the English narrative tradition by mounting a stylistic exorcism consisting of parody, irony, hyperbole, and Manichaean allegory that takes the shape of a hybrid mask peopled by grotesques. Simultaneously, he engages in a serious cultural critique of British imperialism manifested in the attitudes of the Anglo-Saxon psyche toward race, class, gender, sensuality, and sexuality. Durrell perceives the etiology of the colonialist disease in the paternalistic mentality, that is, the English death, that gave rise to the British Empire. Quote, I am tempted to write a little about my father. The Black Book is at once an act of prophecy, revelation, and resistance, a call to action on behalf of personal, artistic, and political freedom. Writing in the wake of the Suez Crisis, Durrell sets his most well-known novel, The Alexandria Quartet, in Egypt on the eve of World War II. Here he continues his ongoing critique of imperialism by focusing on the British presence in Egypt that operates as the narrative nucleus of Mount Olive. Alexandria is a city of many cultures, a geographical crossroads, a site of extreme hybridity. Its long history is a catalog of dominance and influence from a wide variety of cultures, Greek, Jewish, Roman, Islamic, French, British, and finally Egyptian. According to one of its residents, it is a civic space that accommodates alterity. The other feels at home in Alexandria. For Durrell, it represents the birthplace of Western civilization with its legacy of Greek philosophy and culture, an appropriate location for what he calls his European novel. Yet, the fact that it was founded by Alexander the Great, one of the most notorious imperialists of all time, cannot have escaped Durrell's notice, especially given his preoccupation with colonialism in the Black Book. The third and most overtly political volume of the quartet, Mount Olive, Durrell claimed in a letter to Henry Miller was, quote, the fulcrum of the quartet and the rationale of the thing, unquote. It is a naturalistic novel in which political intrigue drives the narrative, and which by contrast with the other three metafictional texts that comprise the quartet foregrounds its aesthetics. Several critics have pointed out colonialist elements ranging from Orientalism and stereotyping to overt racism present in the quartet. 
While I recognize the sources of some of these claims, I believe it is important not to confuse statements made by characters with views held by the author, and that alternative readings are possible and may ultimately be more convincing in the context of the political orientation of Durrell's entire oeuvre. For example, Amani Tafik argues that Durrell employs the motif of mutilation of character and setting in the quartet to symbolize the degeneration that comes about as a result of the waning colonial influence in the, re- in the region. I contend that one could just as reasonably argue that the plurifer- sorry, proliferation of wounded characters represents the consequences of colonialism and operates as a dramatic critique of it. David Manalo, the titular character of the novel, cast as the British ambassador to Egypt preceding World War II, may be perceived as a symbol of what Durrell calls the English death in the Black Book. Behind his diplomatic mask, there is emptiness. His concern is with outward appearances rather than substance. How would it look for an ambassador to have a blind wife? He lacks feeling. His cold treatment and dismissal of his former lover, lover, Leela, when she pleads for the lives of her sons who have been implicated in a political conspiracy against the British. His personal and political impotence, his inability to act. At the end of the quartet, having accomplished nothing, he leaves Alexandria for Europe, as he should. If Mount Olive personifies English, English colonialism, and there can be little doubt about this point, Durrell's position on the subject could not be clearer. Despite the fact that Durrell occupied a minor position in the British colonialist apparatus, his literary work does not express the party line, but rather exposes it for what it was, self-serving paternalism based on greed and a desire for power. A criticism often leveled at the quartet is that Alexandria is depicted as a European city rather than an Egyptian one. Durrell's Alexandria is, however, according to those who lived in the city, an accurate portrayal of the population at the time in which the novel is set. And I quote, More than a million soldiers from all the British Empire and all the free armies of occupied Europe had transformed the city into an immense place of exaggerated pleasure. Unquote. Durrell also seems to faithfully capture the city's multicultural heritage in the demographics of its characters. Melissa is Greek, Justine Jewish, Cappadistria Italian, Memlik Arab, Pombal French, Mandal of English, and the Hosnani Egyptian. At the same time, it is a community of expatriates, of exile, of displaced persons searching for themselves. On the level of narrative alone, Durrell's anti-colonialism gains credence. Mount Olive leaves Alexandria for France. Darley leaves for a Greek island. Persewar Neb sends himself permanently through suicide after warning Nassim that Mount Olive had, has been alerted about his subversive political activity. Cleo leaves for France or Italy. Justine and Nassim leave for Geneva with bigger plans than ever. And in one of the last scenes in the novel, Memlik and Justine walk happily down Rufois together. Looking at this cast of characters, it becomes evident that once the English have left Alexandria, the Egyptians, in the persons of Nassim Akhaft and Memlik, an Arab of Tur- Turkish descent, have a hopeful future. Lawrence Durrell's third significant work, The Two-Volume Revolt of Aphrodite, 1974, is a full-scale, gaping critique of contemporary culture, based, again, on Spengler's Decline of the West. The Revolt is a multi-genre text, a novel of ideas, in the form of a socio-political romance that relies heavily on the properties of irony, exploits the techniques of science fiction, and demonstrates the power of the transnational corporation as a symbol of late 20th century capitalism in postmodern culture. Durrell employs the firm Merlin's 
an allusion to magic and the equation of power with ideology with hegemony, as a symbol of the economic infrastructure of contemporary society, as he depicts diminishing personal and professional freedom of the protagonist and narrator, Felix Charlock. The novel becomes an exploration of the nature of freedom through an investigation of the complex web of interrelationships among art, architecture, science, technology, business, and politics as they are played out in the lives of characters, thus reflecting the ubiquitous presence and apparent inescapability of a key constituent of culture, ideology. The revolt demonstrates how what Frederick Jameson would call, quote, the cultural logic of late capitalism is a pervasive, actually invasive, self-perpetuating ideology that shows clear signs of degenerating into what Spengler calls civilization, a historical period characterized by exploitation, possession, hegemony, and the abuse of power. For Spengler, imperial Rome epitomizes civilization and the intellect, while culture and the soul are exemplified by ancient Greece. In Durrell's novel, Julian the male is associated with civilization, and Iolant, the female with culture. The revolt of Aphrodite is an open-ended narrative whose title involved, invokes the Greek goddess of love and dramatizes the struggle between culture and civilization in Spanglerian terms. The revolt is an historiographic narrative that reveals the relationship between the individual and society by depicting the dehumanizing forces of a consumer society. Both Yolande and Benedicta intuit freedom as a precondition for love and manage to free themselves from Julian's control. Through the process of writing, Felix, the scientist, recovers his lost freedom and identity and discovers the humanizing potential of art. Julian, the Nietzschean superman, is destroyed by his desire to control the electronically resurrected Ilan. The product of his boundless hubris and misguided search for love and happiness is an object of his own creation. At the suggestion of the dying Jokas, Felix, now head of the firm, is about to conduct an experiment by burning the contracts that bind individuals to the firm, suggesting perhaps that there is need for a new social contract. Responsibility for determining the outcome is left to the imagination of the reader. In this way, Durrell seeks to engage her in an act of social responsibility, a clear example of aesthetics intrinsically bound to ethics. In The Revolt of Aphrodite, Durrell provides a provisional explanation for the degeneration of postmodern culture the co-opting of artistic and scientific creativity by those holding economic power, a discounting of the value of the female principle in patriarchal culture, the reification of human beings in a consumer society, and the replacement of authentic personal interaction with the external world by a more distanced and dehumanized technological experience. The Revolt of Aphrodite, in whose very title the concept of revolution is embedded, is an implicit call to action for a cultural revolution to bring about a new age governed by freedom, love, compassion, and trust. The Avignon Quintet, set during World War II in the south of France with forays into Egypt, is Durrell's fourth novel that foregrounds politics in its condemnation of fascism, which might be perceived as the destiny of unchecked colonialism, the phenomenon of the English death present in the three earlier novels transmuted into the horrors of Nazism. The ubiquitous metaphor of madness is the major vehicle for Durrell's social critique in the quintet, as mental illness becomes a symbol and measure of the moral illness of the body politic that ultimately leads to war and destruction. The metaphor of madness works on two levels. 
It is associated with character. Sylvie goes mad after the death of her brother and is, and is incarcerated in the asylum at Montfabay. Constance is a psychiatrist by profession and therefore in touch with madness on a daily basis. On a historical level, the metaphor of madness signals the cultural psychosis that allowed the Third Reich, the European death, if you will, to exist. According to Michel Foucault, quote, the reason madness nexus constitutes for Western culture one of the dimensions of its originality. In the quintet, references to Desaad prepare the reader for Durrell's treatment of the Nazi occupation of France, an example of what can happen when rationality is divorced from affect, stretched beyond its limits, logic fails, and violence usurps reason. Snerville's discourse on the new order with its plans for racial purity and its inversion of good and evil clearly demonstrates this. In addition to outlining the more widely known aspects of the Nazi project, he adds, quote, this is what interests Afur, a lost tradition of chivalry, which he wishes to re-endow and make a base for a new European model of knighthood, but a black order, not white, unquote. The this refers to, quote, the lore of the Gnostics and Templars, unquote. It's interesting to note that there was a historical connection between the Nazis and the Gnostics, especially the Cathars, the pure. The Nazis could relate to the Cathars, Cathars on several counts, their single-minded commitment to a cause, their antipathy to Rome, and their doctrine of purity, which they appropriated to sustain their concept of the Aryan superman. The highest-ranking SS official, Heinrich Himmler, hired a historian specializing in the Albigensian crusade, Otto Rahn. Himmler's personal agenda was to prove the superiority of the Aryan race, and he felt that Rahn's work could support this claim and also help him in his search for the Holy Grail, last associated with the Templars. Constance re- responds to Smirgel's outpouring by calling it a, quote, a pathology, unquote, and in dismay adds, how innocent we were, how trusting. We were raised not to believe in politics, but in man and his innate capacity for justice and a search for equity and happiness. And now this thing. Durrell has written at length in A Key to Modern British Poetry about the importance of Freud to 20th century thought. In Civilization and its Discontents, Freud theorizes that it is the tension between eros and the death instinct, between love and the aggressive impulse, that provides the theater for the drama of civilization. He concludes, quote, The faithful question for the human species seems to me to be whether and to what extent their cultural development will succeed in mastering the disturbance of their communal life by the human instinct of aggression and self-destruction, unquote. Such a statement would seem to provide an appropriate coda to the quintet, what might be perceived as Durrell's literary response to the problem Freud articulates. Having borne witness to the limitations of a Western scientific worldview, epitomized by the rise of fascism in mid-20th century Europe, Durrell offers a vision of Eastern mysticism, the five scandals of Buddhist philosophy in the quintet, not as a replacement, but as an enhancement, a true hybrid that offers more possibilities for perceiving and being in the world. In the words of Emmanuel Wallerstein, such a rapprochement would reunite, quote, the quest for the true with the quest for the good and the beautiful, unquote. It is through metafiction, historiographic and geographic, that Durrell expands the boundaries of the traditional novel to examine the relationships between time and narrative, between place and philosophy. The Alexandria Quartet, his European novel, the Avignon Quintet, his Tibetan novel, both demonstrate how literature can elucidate and accommodate differing worldviews, 
register the collision of Occidental and Oriental philosophies, and finally suggest how each might enrich the other. Matthias Bauer describes literature as the paradigm of an ongoing humanistic search for a necessarily partial truth, the only way to combat any kind of totalitarianism, by focusing on strikingly formulated, mimetically represented, and critically reflected ideas in the historical context. It would be difficult to find a literary text that could more fully realize this definition in both theory and practice than the Alexandria Quartet. <coughs> in each of his four major works of fiction, The Black Book, The Alexandria Quartet, The Revolt of Aphrodite, and The Avignon Quintet, Lawrence Durrell weds ethics to aesthetics through content and form as he presents values that alert his readers to the necessity for positive social change if greater personal and political freedom is to be achieved in any world beyond the fictional. Thank you.